Welcome to this episode of the Terrier Talks podcast. I'm Kurt McPhail, the Executive Director of the Career Center and Office of Entrepreneurship at Wofford College, and one of the hosts for the Terrier Talks podcast. This podcast is a partnership between the Career Center and the Alumni Wofford Office at Wofford College. Speaking of the Alumni Office, Dina, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dina Roberts, the Executive Director of Engagement and Annual Giving, and I'm excited to host this podcast as well. Before we jump into the first podcast, I just have to say so much has changed since these were recorded. For example, we're recording this intro in separate places as we all deal with the global pandemic. And Kurt, you have a new name. We may mention the space in the podcast, but it's now officially the Career Center and the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Dina, that's correct. So much is different since we originally recorded these. Our goal, though, is still the same, to provide an outlet to share the stories of the Wofford community. I think Reverend Talmadge Skinner, the former chaplain, said it best when he said, you don't just come to Wofford, you join Wofford. We're very excited that you've decided to join us today. This episode includes an interview with Zach Beaver, class of 2012. We hope you enjoy hearing Zach talk about how his decision not to go to medical school played a role in his path to working at Google. Welcome to the Terrier Talk podcast. Uh, I'm Kurt McPhail, the executive director of the space here at Wofford. Our uh, goal is to help prepare students for life after Wofford, make sure our students are the best prepared. Um, and today's podcast, we're excited with our guest. I'll let our co-host introduce herself. Good afternoon. I'm Dina Roberts, executive director of engagement and annual giving. Thank you, Dina. This is a exciting first for us. And our guest today is an exciting one that I'm glad's here. Um, Zach Beaver, who graduated in 2012. Um, Zach, why don't you introduce yourself? Wofford grad 2012. My brother also graduated in 2015. And uh, I've taken a pretty circuitous path to now end up at Google working on some artificial intelligence projects. And glad to be here chatting. That's awesome. Zach, we're excited you're here. Um, you have taken a circuitous path to get to Google. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what you majored in and, and what you thought you were going to do um, upon graduation? Yeah, so I, I forget the statistic, but I think I was part of the 40% of students who majored it, said they were going to major in biology when they first came to Wofford and had always grown up believing that I was going to be a doctor or an NBA player. Um, that was my first choice. And uh, I came to Wofford, majored in biology, minored in computer science, and over the course of being there and going through the experiences of shadowing doctors and learning more about the profession, I just couldn't pull the trigger by the end of it. That's right. Um, and you had gotten accepted into med school, is that? Yep. Yeah, a few med schools. That's great. That's great. Um, why don't you talk a little bit, data scientist is sounds really exciting. Um, and working at Google, we've, everyone's seen a lot about, um, or, or thinks of what it's like to work at Google. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what is a data scientist and what's it like to work at Google? Yeah. Uh, so data scientist is a, a fairly new term. I think it was coined around 2008. And it's like all scientists should probably use data. So it's a bit of a, a weird term. Uh, but it, what it really means is that it's people who specialize in bringing together statistics, um, lots of data, programming, and then uh, business acumen to help people make informed decisions uh, when there's a deluge of data. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty broad uh, spectrum when you look at what people actually do in the job. Um, at Google, a lot of what it looks like 
is being pretty heavy in statistics. So um, looking at data about all of the products that Google is making. Um, let's take, for example, Google Docs, right? So data scientists may go in there and look at um, how users are interacting with Google Docs. Maybe lots of them are quickly creating and deleting documents. And so they might go in and find these patterns of user behavior and then make recommendations for the product. You mentioned computer science as a minor. Is that correct? Um, I don't know if I did, but I did minor in computer science. Okay. I initially majored in it, Okay. and I found that uh, I wanted to go study abroad and travel, so I dropped it down to a minor, and I think I finished nearly all of my classes by sophomore year. So what I guess my question is, what drew you to an interest in computer science? Was it something you had known from high school, or was it something that you were exposed to when you were here at Wofford? Yeah, um, I, I was always interested in computers growing up. Um, when I was in high school, I, I think it was my junior or senior year, I, I ordered the individual parts of a computer and my dad was an electrical engineer, so he pushed me to be a doctor, oddly, uh, but he was always around technology and computers. And so I remember like assembling a computer as a Christmas present, figuring out how to load operating systems and start to teach myself a little bit of programming. Um, but it's weird how things go in cycles. So there was an initial interest that kind of waned in and immediately after college. That's fascinating. Um, I want to talk a little bit more, Zach, about your path. Um, you've lived in some interesting places and done some interesting things. Um, Wofford here in South Carolina, you spent some time in California and now reside in California, but also spent some time in DC. Mm -hmm. um, Students are often trying to think about where is it that they want to go when they graduate from Wofford. Um, what's your thoughts and sort of theories around place and how important it is to think about place? Um, and I'd be interested in sort of your sort of the thought process behind, you know, going from East Coast to West Coast, back to East Coast and back to the West Coast. There's a there's a great article that. It's one of my favorites. It's written by this guy named Paul Graham, and it's called Cities and Ambition. And he, he writes this article basically making the case to his readers, a lot of people that are co-founders of companies, that um, where you are, where you start your company, or where you build your career really matters, even maybe more so than your own individual skill or your personal drive. And he gives this example of all of the great Italian Renaissance painters um, all came all were born and came out of Florence, even though um, other areas there were probably just people that were just as talented. But there was something about the culture of the place that allowed them to sharpen one another and to build this kind of culture of excellence around painting um, and art in general. And so the, the idea is that there are, each city has a message or a culture, a vibe that it sends out. Um, even every company or a family, if you get down to smaller units. And uh, what I think I found really helpful in sharpening my skill set as a data scientist is saying where's the bleeding edge of of uh of the skill set like where is that being developed where is it being honed and just putting and then putting myself amidst the people that are doing those kinds of things i i feel like has been a great uh it's been exciting because you're around people that love what they do and then um it's it's kind of helped it's helped me sharpen a skill that otherwise would not be as sharp no, thank you. You talk about skills. How do you ensure the skills you're building don't become obsolete, and how do you add to your portfolio? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, I constantly feel like if I'm learning something, especially related to programming or, or technology, that it'll, I'll have to relearn it in two years. But I think there's a great analogy in, in terms of le learning languages, where uh, after, like when you learn a second or a third language, like the, the third or the fourth is a lot easier. And so uh, the, the idea of like, I, I, I like to set goals, like learning goals for every year of something new that I want to learn. And then it becomes the snowball effect of being able to learn faster and faster. And so as the pace accelerates, hopefully the learning curve um, is, is shorter and shorter for each of those. So, so what are the, some of the things that you put on your most recent year's things to learn something new? Yeah, uh, right now it's becoming proficient in programming in C++. And, uh, and current, I mean, it's, it's my, my job now, but it's, it's basically being able to build production software that has um, machine learning and uh, forms of artificial intelligence in it, learning how to build a product. Um, I'm, I still think I'm pretty new in that area. That's awesome. What about past years? What are some other things? Other goals have been around learning how to use uh, dashboarding tools to communicate uh, data with, um, with stakeholders or other people, um, learning Python as a programming language. Um, and then a, a lot of it has been reading around, I think it would just be so cool to start a business someday. So what are the skill sets to, to build to feel like I would be proficient enough or have the, the vision and the acumen, not just technically, but to be able to identify a business opportunity and seize it at some point in the future when I'm not scared and think that I, I could, that, uh, that I would have the skill set to do it. I'm intrigued by this concept of learning new things and a lot of the things you talked about are complex things to learn, right? They're not, not like, hey, I want to learn how to make a three-point basket or something like that, although you wanted to be an NBA star, so you probably already knew that's how That's harder to do. <laughs> well, I, I would agree probably in some sense, but... I, I am intrigued by Wofford is, you know, proudly a liberal arts education institution and this concept of constantly learning. It sounds like you embody that post-graduation. I'm, I'm curious what you would say would be Wofford's impact on that, not only just the ability, but the drive to constantly learn and constantly set new goals for yourself. Mm. Uh, yeah, the the people I was around at Wofford were were like that. I don't know my best my best friends. We we always felt like we were a little bit competing with each other, but in a a friendly way. And yeah, there was kind of a culture of that um, when I was here at Wofford, especially in on the pre med track. Um, but even even more than that, I, I think you know, like in the job I'm in now, there have been people that have taken very strict math and engineering paths to to be um, in the job role. And the reason I think I was able to break into it was uh, because I didn't have a strict technical background. And by that, I'm, I mean, I was able, to, I think I, one of my biggest uh, things I bring to the team is being able to understand the impact of technology on, on people and understand, like try to understand the use, like our users. Um, and understanding how the technology then translates to have material impact um, on other people. And those are, that's a real skill set that I don't know how, like if someone said like, how do you build that? It's like, I don't know, but it has something to do with like being well-rounded yeah. and, 
and it de it definitely like comes back to I think a lot of the the methods of learning and ways of like learning more than just a strict technical skill set that's um, embodied by Wofford's education. You talked a little bit about um, living kind of in various places. What um, obstacles did you face in terms of trying to relocate or, or deciding to relocate? You know, what kind of guided your decisions in that mm -hmm. area? Uh, after undergrad, I, I moved with a friend to, to San Diego. Um, I had backed out of medical school, and um, there was... There was a program in San Diego that was a community development program with um, a church out there. So I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I needed to uh, have other people give me input and figure out, um, like ask people that had walked ahead of me what to do. And so they had this actually like faith and work initiative that was associated with this church where you got a full-time job working and they kind of helped you in job placement. So um, I decided to be a part of that and found a job teaching. Um, a lot of that was because there were there was a friend from Wofford that was willing to like make the jump with me. Um, I think that's one thing that I talked to my wife that grew up and went to school in California, and the relationships like built between students. Like when I look at my friends who have graduated, are really strong and they're still hanging out and doing things together. Whereas I feel like a lot of people that I've met um, from other schools that have graduated, those bonds are a lot looser, and so. That was the kind of like initial impetus to be able to take a step outwards was to have a friend and people to do it with in community. Uh, beyond that was I can't going back to the the sense of place like where are the places where I feel like I could build a career that has more um, impact and sharpen a skill set. Yeah. You um, were on the pre med track, mm -hmm. accepted to med schools backed out, and then ended up teaching math and science, right? Yep. Talk about that transition from what I thought I wanted to do or what I thought I would be to teaching school. And, and I mean, I imagine that's a, there's a bit of a difference in that. And I think that's, a, um, that's an important life moment that we all go through where we think we want to do something, right. but then we end up being doing something completely different. Right. And, trying to do the mental gymnastics to make, okay, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I'd be, I'd be intrigued to think through how, how was that time? Mm -hmm. um, how was teaching in, in San Diego and those kinds of things? It was hard. It was <laughs> the hardest job I've ever had. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the going to being a teacher was, um, I, I thought that teaching was something that I could uh, be, Good at. I think I just had a lot of great teachers at Wofford, and teaching high school is different from teaching college. <laughs> I thought if I mastered the information and was a good teacher, then I would be a good high school teacher. Um, I really needed to be a good entertainer and class manager as well. Um, but but the the transition was difficult because um, for me, I had this expectation of of being a doctor for you know close to 15 years, and when you flip out of that and you start to do something that you didn't expect and um, you know being a career as a doctor is like it has a lot of social and status and like financial like benefits to being a doctor and so when you go out and I like kind of threw that away it I didn't expect it but it started breeding a lot of anxiety so I 
I remember the first day of, of teaching high school, I woke up and I, I was woken up by anxiety and I just like ran to the bathroom and just vomited. Oh, wow. I was, I, I was so <laughs> anxious because I was like, I threw away a network. I threw, well, is my major worthless? Um, I'm teaching at this private school and trying to teach calculus, which wow. I'm trying to like reteach myself. Who knows? I don't know exactly how they thought I was qualified to teach that. Um, but it was very nerve wracking. Um, and again, I think I, I harped on this a little bit before, but having other people outside of your own head where you can start to spiral into the, into that, like for me, anxiety was, was super beneficial of helping push me and give me kind of a foundation to keep pushing forward towards a path that was really unknown at the time. Yeah. You talk about the people that have gone before you, how do you identify mentors and what do you look for in a mentor? There's always people you look around, like you see someone talk or you, you see them talking, you're like, man, I want to be like that guy or that girl. Uh, so that's, that was part of it. Um, when I was in San Diego, uh, there, were, there were like three people that I met that I thought were like my board, have been my board of advisors. And they're people that took, had like similar values. Um, I like reached out to them and they also took an interest in me um, in trying to figure out what to do vocationally. So they, um, they were in a wide range of fields. One was a doctor that I would get breakfast with like every two weeks. And he just was just very much confirmed. He's like, you should not be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'd have horrible bedside manner or something. I don't know. Um, the other one was in marketing, like writing op-eds for Harvard Business Review and New York Times. And then the other one was her husband, which was a microbiologist who's now working on anti-aging. And they were super helpful in helping me think about like, don't ask exactly what you're passionate about doing like what are you what are you good at where could you find where could you be of service to others and have a bigger impact um, in the work that you do and so that perspective shift was really big Um, and then having them as people that when there were other transitions in life um, or job opportunities you know you you call up your board of advisors uh, just like, like someone in a company would consult their advisors before making a big executive decision and those those people have been um, extremely formative. That's great. Speaking of big executive decisions, um, at some point in time, you chose to stop teaching and move to DC to work on catching fraud and the government. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interesting, interested in trying to think through what what process. You know, what was the intrigue to move back to the East Coast to move to DC and and um, and I'd love to know more about how you caught fraud in the government. What was the role? Moving to D.C., so I talked about having this board of advisors, and uh, one of them, the doctor, his wife, uh, was just overhearing our conversation one day. It was actually very serendipitous that I kind of got this first break in data science, and she said, I think I babysat for a guy who's a CEO of a company that does what you do. And she connected me with this guy and just gave me a strong character reference, and he ran this consulting firm um, in D.C. and Virginia. I talked with him for 30 minutes on the phone, and he said, he said, yeah, let's set you up with our VP. I talked to their VP for 30 minutes, and then he said, sure, let's get you an interview. And then I interviewed. They're actually, they have a robot that rolls around their office. <laughs> and uh, so they put my face on a robot for like a quote-unquote like live interview for like three hours with uh, different people. And... Coming out of it, I was like, I hope I 
maybe I get an <laughs> internship out of this. And then they hired me oh, wow. um, as a, a junior data scientist. Uh, so moving to D.C., there, it wasn't necessarily like I was looking for jobs in D.C. or wanted to go, but there was just a serendipitous break where I was like, I, I honestly did not deserve to be working for this company at the time, um, but because of the strong character reference um, and I think willingness to be trained and them being in a spot as a company to hire on younger data scientists that they were willing to mentor was, um, it was a great opportunity. Yeah. Um, but to your question about fraud, uh, I probably, yeah, I probably shouldn't list the, the organizations <laughs> that we, Fair enough. we worked with, but, um, we were, we were basically going in and looking at all of the data that they had on, um, people's transactions across the U S in relation to the government. And then we were trying to find bad actors that were stealing, uh, government benefits or taxpayer money, and then send those over to investigators so that they could go and crack down on fraud and people that were stealing taxpayer money. Interesting. That is fascinating. Um, you ended up at UC Berkeley and got a master's of information and data science. Mm -hmm. How long after you had been at Wofford did you do that? And then, um, you had a really cool capstone project, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. All right. Uh, so UC Berkeley was, I believe, two years after Wofford. Um, so actually, I, I taught a year, and then after that, I, I entered a separate grad program that was in basically information technology, and I was like, oh, this is not for me. Um, and I dropped out of that and then went to the one at UC Berkeley. Um, and this was... So the, the Master of Information in Data Science, um, I, I mentioned earlier that data science was a, co a term that was coined in 2008, and so they're developing this curriculum pretty soon on the heels of data science even being a thing. So I was in the inaugural class of this master's program, and it was a lot of projects, a lot of collaboration, and at the end of it you have this big capstone project that you do that's a synthesis of all of the things that you've learned in the course. and. Uh, a couple teammates and I got together and we looked at Major League Baseball data. So you can get all of the pitch data for like every pitch that's been thrown in the past however many years. And what we did is we took all of the pitch information, you know, what pitch was thrown like the past five times, uh, who was on base at any given, during any given pitch, what's the batter's uh, stance is the pitcher right or left-handed, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we built these machine learning models to predict for every single pitcher what pitch they were going to throw next. Wow. Um, and it was pretty accurate, uh, <laughs> at least for some pitchers. Some pitchers were hard to predict. And the idea was that we would, uh, was that we would take these models. Um, they were about to allow iPads in the dugout in Major League Baseball and that we would go and sell this to a team, like go to the Oakland A's or something and say, um, because if you could do it quick, right, mm -hmm. you could predict a pitch and you could signal to the third base coach who would signal to the batter while they stepped out of the box. Like when you're 80% sure, like you're getting a fastball next, you know, just tug on your ear, fastball <laughs> is coming, like 80% chance. Hank Aaron had this great quote. It was like uh, something like 80% of being a good hitter is knowing what the pitcher is going to throw next. Oh, wow. And so that was our pitch. Um, <laughs> we we got a yeah we got some good like a lot of recognition for the project. And actually, Major League Baseball came. Uh, we had offers to go interview with, actually with the headquarters afterwards oh, wow. um, in New York. 
at like MLB's head office, which is pretty sweet. I kind of wish we had kept going with that project. I think it could be a real thing. Maybe they already do it. Yeah, that's exciting. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were at Wofford as a student? That is a good question. I love the interims and looking back, um, I'm actually looking to my younger brother who I think is a lot cooler than me. Um, he, he really took advantage of interim and he proposed his own interim twice, uh, once in brewing beer and once in grilling. And he ended up taking the beer brewing and like he's doing his doctorate degree basically in fermentation science now because um, he was a chemistry major. And it's such a it's such a unique thing to have a month where you can like go explore something of interest to you and have a professor sponsor you. That's like that's very special. Like I wish I could take a month out of my job now and like pursue a side project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would say take advantage of that. Um, and then also uh, the I, I harped on this before, but the relationships with professors and students are something that just seemed normal here. And I, I don't think they're normal. Like that's, there's a very strong like bond to realize that you're building while you're here at Wofford that is like going to benefit you, not just in a career, but also like socially in terms of community when you graduate. Um, and so to not, yeah, not, uh, not necessarily be so hardcore focused on getting into med school. First off, it sounds like we should get your brother on the podcast to talk about the oh, chemistry yeah. of brewing he's, beer. He's absolutely. <laughs> I, tell, I tell everyone he's way cooler than me. Yeah. I don't know about all that. <laughs> the Beaver it, Brothers. The Beaver Brothers. We could have, we could have our own. We have we'll be own, back. We'll be back with the Beaver Brothers, exactly. Um, a lot of students are thinking about, you know, how do they land a dream job? How do they land a dream grad school What's your advice for those students who are listening who in their junior and senior year trying to figure it all out? Um, I know you talked about the personal board of advisors, and I think that's a great, great place to start. But what other advice do you have for folks that are really trying to figure it out and think about what, what they're going mm-hmm. to pursue? Yeah, there's, I think there's a, a myth that I've believed for a long time, which is that if you can figure out what you're passionate about, if you find your passion, then you'll know exactly what to do next. Um, and if you know your passion, then you can set this like milestone far out in the future and you just work in a straight line towards it. But I, I don't think that's how it works because it thinks that passion is this static thing that you just maintain through time. And uh, what I've found to be, like, more to be true is that um, as you build competency and skill in an area where you can be like very good that competency almost engenders passion um as as you as you build it and so uh just to like recognize that and to say it's okay not to know exactly what you do or to have quote unquote found your passion i think the people that i look up to a lot of a lot of them say that they've become passionate in their job or in the thing that they're doing because once you get good at something it's like you you kind of make yourself uh, start to like it and you become like, uh, you start to see creativity in what you do because now you can break the rules in the right ways in order to do things that others haven't done before. Yeah, that's great. I have a question about how do you handle, what's advice to handle failure as your first 
you know, a couple of years out of school and maybe, you know, how do you, how do you handle that and persevere? Yeah, I, I think like not looking, like once you've failed at something, there's a time, for me, there's a time to learn from it, but there's always just the question saying, okay, what do I do next? Um, the other thing is that there's a way that I think for me where failure has hurt me the most is when I've become too absorbed or wrapped up in the thing that I was doing. So it's it's very easy for me to uh, get my identity a little too wrapped up in my work, which is probably even evident from some of the things I've been saying in the podcast. I'm like very oriented towards career and work. Um, but when my identity has gotten too wrapped up in those things where I let my performance at work affect um, mood or how you like I feel about myself, then uh, when failure comes, it becomes much more crushing um, and something that's harder to recover from. And so a reminder that I am not my work is uh, is one that my wife has to keep telling me. That's a great one. And I think those of us who don't know and have any firsthand experience about what it's like to work at Google have this image of constant work, constant fun offices and, you know, Mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. But I am curious as to how you have found um, what works for you in terms of this life and work balance. And Mm -hmm. I read a lot about life and work balance. And there's some people that say, oh, you've got to have a a balance. And then there's like, there's no real balance at all. It's just, Mm -hmm. you just enjoy what you do and that becomes it. But I'm curious as to you, you know, what's your thoughts on work-life balance and, and how do you maintain um, or work to maintain something that's healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, my my wife has actually been a, a big help um, with that because I'm coming home at the end of the day. If I bring work home, there's a sometimes there's an implicit uh, there's an implicit message that my work is more important than my time with her, which is not true in my mind, but it can seem that way um, at times. And so uh, I. Tr- some of the just rules or guardrails I've tried to put in place is to not do work after I get off the bus. And if I do, to try to give, um, like there's sometimes when you just have to do things to give uh, an expectation that that's going to be done in the future or going to be done tomorrow night. Um, I think the other thing is at Google, you can you can kind of find whatever role you want to fill. So there are definitely are people that are workaholics um, that are really good at what they do, love their work. Some people that are stressed out by it and also work a lot. Um, But then there's also people that see it strictly as like a nine to five, nine to six job. And there's room for all those kinds of people, I think, at the company. And it just, it's sort of like people's own own disposition. And the kinds of people that want to work at Google usually are a little more type A. So they tend naturally, I think, towards more work. I love that image of guardrails. That's a that's a great way to think about it. So, um, Zach, I really appreciate your time with us today and, yeah, and sharing awesome. with us and to be on the the Terrier Talk podcast. Um, I wish you well, and we'll maybe get you back on with your brother for a, a Beavers brother update. Perfect. And, uh, so anyway, look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll continue to listen and share this podcast with all of your Wofford connections. If you know a member of the Wofford community whose story should be told, please reach out to us. You can do that at alumni at wofford.edu and career center at wofford.edu. There are some people who we'd like to thank uh, who helped make this possible. 
First student interns Katie Husselby and Naya Lutz were critical in getting this podcast started and recorded. We also want to thank Creative by Design for auto editing and enhancing.